Welcome to episode seven of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a contracts manager and a freelance editor. And I'm your co-host, JJ. I am an author and erstwhile editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. Today, we are kicking off our NaNoWriMo month of podcasts. Yeah. And uh, we're going to focus particularly today on ideas, Uh, which is a good thing because I'm panicking, everybody. (laughs) Don't panic. It's fine. You'll be fine. I promise. Yeah. I don't know about that. (laughs) It's only 30 days. NaNo is fine. You'll be fine. It's okay. Um, so, you know, I think this month we'll focus, um, on some pep talks, how to get through it. Um, I won NaNoWriMo in 2013 Mm -hmm. and later went on to go sell that novel. So I kind of feel like, oh, I have some wisdom to impart to people, except I don't know, not everybody's going to write like me. So I don't know how useful all of it is. But I figured I could at least try and dissect my own process down, um, and mm-hmm. maybe that would be helpful for some people. Anything would be helpful at this point. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, this week we're going to focus on on ideas because um, it is a is a number one question a lot of writers get is where do you get your ideas from, mm-hmm. and I think I think the problem isn't necessarily that people don't know or that rather that people don't get ideas. It's that they don't know how to turn those ideas into a book. Right. Um, so I did write a post for pub crawl, um, how to turn, how to find the right idea to turn into the book, to turn into a book, which I can link to in the show notes. And I also wrote on my blog, sort of a companion piece to that, which I can also link to, um, that's a little bit more NaNoWriMo focused as opposed to mm-hmm. sort of like generally focused. So, um, I don't know. Let's see. Do you have any questions before we start off, Kelly? If you want to ask me anything or contribute or have any thoughts. <laughs> or if you Do just anything that other, other than quietly panic here in the background. <laughs> I'm really panicking, you guys. Um, <laughs> but it's going to be fine. It's going to be totally fine. Um, yeah, you know... We're talking about ideas, and like you said, I think a lot of people have ideas or, you know, little story seeds or little bits and pieces that um, will come to them. And it's really transforming those things into an overall story that I think is one of the most difficult things to do, or at least that's how I feel Right now, sort of, but also just kind of in general, I'll have like characters floating around in my head or I'll have like a premise or a really cool, um, you know, thought in my head about, you know, or a question like, what if, you know, this were to happen? Um, But that's not a story. That's not an overarching narrative. That's not a complete thing. It's just a little snippet. And so... What do you, what do you do with those? How do you how do you how do you transform those bits of like ephemera into something that's actually useful? 
Well, first of all, I think you should write any story seeds that come down to you down in a journal. Um, I carry a moleskin with me. Yes, I know it's a stereotype, but I have a moleskin and I do write in it pretty frequently. Mm -hmm. And if I have any ideas for stories, for anything, just these sort of thoughts that come to me, I will write them down because I don't remember anything anymore. I mean, I, I barely (laughs) remember people's phone numbers. I still remember all the phone numbers as phone numbers of every house I've ever lived in, but I can't, nothing new. (laughs) Like after 1997, I can't, I've lost the ability to remember any phone numbers. Um, but I, I, I write them down. Um, Mm -hmm. and I usually, so story seats is what I call them. The, the, the what ifs, the characters, um, maybe story ideas or plot ideas. I, divide, I call those story seeds and Mm -hmm. I divide those into three classes. Very simply characters, character story seeds. You have premise story seeds. Those are the, the what ifs, the what if Mm -hmm. scenarios, the sort of, um, basically it's a scenario. I think more than anything is really what I would call premise and Mm -hmm. plot, you know, Plot is the one story seed that doesn't come to me very easily. I usually have to go like consciously search for plot because I'm really <laughs> bad at it. But mm-hmm. I often get what ifs and I often get characters. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I would just start writing them down and then start identifying what kind of story seeds there are. And the three type or the three classes of story seeds are all necessary for a book. You need a premise, you need characters, and you need a plot. But you don't necessarily need all of them to start writing. So you have if you have two of the three is when you can start writing. Okay. Does it matter which two you have? I don't actually think so. Um, you could, I, because I think you can work at finding the third. So, mm-hmm. for example, let's say you have a character and a plot. Like, so you have a character and you have something for that character to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you can, you know, you sit back and figure out what the context of that plot is, and that would be your premise. Mm-hmm. Or if you had a premise and plot, you know, so you have the setting, more or less, and, you know, what happens you can sort of sit down and work on well who was doing the things in this book mm-hmm. and if you have character and premise which is what I usually have I usually have characters and I usually have premises then I usually have to sit down and then figure out what on earth are they going to do <laughs> <laughs> so when you talk about having these little story seeds these one of these three elements um and you need two out of three out of the three to start writing how how fully formed do these story seeds need to be? Do you need to know everything about your character before you start writing? If that's one of the the three pieces that you have, or is it enough to just kind of have like a hazy outline, a general understanding and then move forward? Cause I know that for me right now, <laughs> maybe I, I might have like one and a half. <laughs> like, I, I kind of, I have a, I have a premise and I have characters, but they, don't have names yet, for example, um, you know, and, and I know some of them better than I know others. Um, and so how much do you really need to get 
going, you know, does that count? Is that enough? Honestly, that's enough. I think, um, knowing, I mean, names, I, I usually know names, but sometimes they don't always come to me immediately. Mm-hmm. So I literally just put in brackets name mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and move forward. Ultimately the name may come to me later. The, I mean, characters, or at least the way I think of characters, um, because I'm an inside out writer, I tend to think of these characters as being organic and separate from me. So mm-hmm. when I'm drafting, it's really a process where I'm getting to know them. So I am not, it's, it's like meeting anybody else. You meet a person and you get to know them, you know, over the course of your acquaintance, you get to know them better and better. So for character anyway, um, I don't think you need to know every last detail. And in fact, it can absolutely be a procrastinatory technique. I should know because (laughs) I've done it. Um, needing to know what their favorite color is or what Hogwarts house they would be in. Um, I've done that all. I've done all of it. It's not necessary. You don't need to know that. The, the only thing you need to know about your character in, in, for me, it all comes out in the writing. I throw them into a situation and how they react is Mm -hmm. I start to learn who they are. Um, but I think your character's giving them this is actually a trick I learned from watching a critique of Star Wars <laughs> uh, I can't remember where it was now I, I I really wish I could remember now but this was a video critique of it was actually the prequel trilogy compared against to the original trilogy mm-hmm. and they say the the person making the critique said that the characters of the original trilogy are so much stronger because you could describe Luke, Leia, and Han using three adjectives that didn't describe their sex, their profession, what they looked like, or what they wore. But you couldn't necessarily do that for any of the characters in the prequel trilogy. (laughs) Like, try and describe Queen Amidala using three adjectives that doesn't describe her profession, what her, you know, sex or gender is and what she looks like. Hmm. It's really hard to do, but you can easily do that for princess Leia. True. So I think that's a good exercise. If you don't know your characters, I think writing down three adjectives for each of them that do not have to do with their sex or gender or ethnicity what they are, like what their profession is and what they look like, and just write down those character adjectives, mm-hmm. those traits. So, yeah, purely mm-hmm. internal. Mm-hmm. I think I think that probably would be a good start on um, getting to know your characters. So that's actually really helpful. I've never thought about <laughs> I've never thought about that before. But I'm you know my the wheels in my brain are churning now. So Yay. you guys, I have to tell you, this is all like a thinly veiled excuse to get me through NaNoWriMo. <laughs> <laughs> That's not entirely true, but I, I am benefiting from this podcast as much as anyone else. I mean, I am best with, with character and, and mm-hmm. premise. Um, I, the what-ifs of premise, I mean, for the, the one I'm working on for NaNoWriMo now, the reason it wasn't working for all of those drafts that you've read, Kelly, is because I had characters and kind of a half, half-assed half plot mm-hmm. <laughs> that sort of changed and, but it didn't have a real premise. It didn't have what I called a point. Like, you know, you had all these real 
I had all these characters that I knew really well and they, I could make them do things, but what was the point of making them do things? Right. You know, if they didn't have context, if they didn't have a setting or a premise to work against or to be contextualized by. So, um, I, and I had been playing with a, uh, sort of a, ma- a system of magic just for fun. I like world building. It's just, I find it fun. I know a lot of people find it intimidating, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I like world building. Um, but I had this system of magic that I've been sort of playing with and tinkering with and, but it didn't have any characters attached to it. And, um, and I literally consciously just like had an aha moment one day. Um, I was watching my partner play magic, the gathering. (laughs) Um, (laughs) he loves magic, the gathering. Um, but I was watching him play and I was, you know, thinking about the systems of magic in this world or in this game. And then I thought about my character. It somehow the thought of my characters came up and I was like, Oh my God, what if I took these characters I've been struggling with for such a long time and put them in this world with magic. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, I think I fixed it. I think I figured out what the point of my story is. Mm-hmm. So and it helped. And this is what I mean. You have to have two of the three. I'm still fuzzy on plot. I'm still working on that. <laughs> but <laughs> I had the two of the three and it really helped because now I knew what my protagonist wanted. I knew what she was working against. I knew what obstacles would be in her way. Um, and I also now had a context for some of the, the themes that I wanted to work out. So you know, sometimes if you just have one, you can, if you've been keeping track of your story seeds, you just find another one and match mm-hmm. them up and see what comes out. So, uh, yeah, as long as you have two of the three, I think, I think you'll be okay. Um, if any of you have plots for, or, or tips for how to plot, I would <laughs> welcome those. Um, you know, I've, I've read, plot books like save the cat, um, sort of other craft books, but I'm not necessarily a huge fan of sort of breaking down my book into beats until after I've written the first draft. Mm -hmm. Um, it doesn't help me to do it before I draft. It helps me more after I draft, but my cheat for plot, like if I don't know what to write or what happens, my cheat is just to retell something. Mm Mm-hmm. It, and it doesn't have to be fairy tale. I know everybody thinks of fairy tales when they think of retellings first, but it could literally be anything. It could be an episode of a TV show. Um, my favorite place to steal or, uh, to retell anything is history. I like history. I like reading about history and history is extremely rich with context that can inspire you in many, many, many different ways. Um, you know, what the story of the Norman conquest of England was like in 1066. Now it might sound really boring, um, but just like take, I don't know, five minutes to think about that. This is a country, you know, that for a while I've been, you know, it's actually been wave after wave of invasions, but, um, mostly been sort of settled into these Anglo-Saxon people and then these foreigners from the continent come over. And the sort of conflict that's there, the cultural clash that's there, 
that's all really rich material to mine from. Uh, mm-hmm. You don't have to make it like a one-to-one ratio, but it helps, you know. I So for me, the context that I'm working with for my book is kind of the beginning of World War One or just prior to World War One. Um, and it like luckily for me, it's a period of time that I am interested in. So I kind of already know a lot, and I can kind of draw on that and then fill in all the research holes later. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but for that's my tip for plot. Plot just doesn't come to me. It, it doesn't happen. <laughs> I'm bad at it. <laughs> so I think that that makes sense to me that you have these three elements. You need at least two to really get going. Um, but, you know, what about the people that are starting NaNoWriMo at the last second and haven't given any thought to anything? They don't have anything. They've got zero out of the three. <laughs> How do you go about discovering those things in the first place? I think the first thing you really need to know is to know what you like to read. And that's sort of my biggest piece of advice for anybody who's writing or actually publishing. If you're in, in getting into publishing, you guys, knowing what you like to read is the greatest asset you can have. Um, if you go on an interview with, with a publisher and you're looking for an editorial position or any position. I've done this. I've done this. Yeah. I've given the answer. Oh, I just love to read everything. Yeah, that doesn't actually work, you guys. Um, it doesn't work at all. And I once had the great Janet Reed look me in the face and tell me that was a stupid answer <laughs> and to figure out what it was that I wanted to read. It was amazing. We were in a bar called Employees Only uh, in New York, and she just looked at me like I was the stupidest human on the face of the earth, and she was like, that is a terrible answer to that question. Figure out what you like to read. Yep, she's right. She, <laughs> she's, many of things, course she's Janet right. Is right. So, um, <laughs> but the more specific you get in anything, it helps. Um, and I, going into publishing, knew very I, I knew what I wanted to do. I love young adult fiction, and specifically, I lo- love young adult fantasy fiction. That's my wheelhouse. That's what I seek out. That's what I want to read. That's what I read mostly outside of work. Of course, I read other categories and other genres, okay. but what I love and where my heart is is YA fantasy, and I knew that, and I'm pretty not only widely read, I'm deeply read in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of a side publishing tip. If you guys are trying to break into the industry of publishing itself, know what you like to read and be as specific as possible. And if it helps, name like five authors who write in that very specific niche that you like. Mm-hmm. Um, and what you, and know what you like about it. That's the other thing. Like you can say, oh, I really like... Stephen King. Well, that's great, but what it is what is it about Stephen King that you like? You know, do you mm-hmm. you know, you can say things like, "Oh, I really love this sort of isolated main setting or you know, you have to be specific and know what it is. So, if you have no story no story seeds, the best thing to do is to sit down, make a list of 10 of your favorite books. Just any, any 10 and 10 of your favorite books and then take each one and write three things down 
that you like about it. Like, I like this character. I like this scene. I like the romance in it. I like the setting. I like, you know, some, you name at mm-hmm. least three things and be as specific as you possibly can. And as needed. Now, I usually caution people <laughs> away from tvtropes.org. Because that website is... Because you'll spend the rest of your life yeah, there? you will never leave. You'll just click on link after link after link. But I think in the case of NaNo, you can actually look up your favorite books on TV Tropes and see what mm-hmm. tropes come up under your favorite book so that could help you identify what it is specifically that you like about your books, your favorite books. Um, so... Once you have your list of 10, I mean, you don't have to do that many. I mean, that's kind of a lot. So we'll say five, five books with three things that you like about each one and see what kind of stands out in common. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for me, I tend to like emotionally stoic heroines and emotionally fluent romantic interests. I tend to like, um, historical settings and I tend to like fantasy novels that are, more about magic than supernatural creatures. You know, these are things I know about me. Um, Mm -hmm. So from there, you know, maybe you can come up with a character from the types of characters that you find yourself drawn to. And then the sort from the the premises, you can, you know, find a what if for your character to be in um, or a plot. I, I don't, again, I don't know how people find plots, so, uh, <laughs> can't help you there, but, you know, so I think steal from the greatest, steal from those that you admire, right? You know, you want imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. This is often why fanfic can really help as well. If you, if you write fan fiction or you did when you were younger, you are learning what you like to read and you're mm-hmm. learning. And I think personally that you should write for yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, if you aren't the, if you aren't your biggest fan, <laughs> then what's the point <laughs> of writing? If you don't love your own work, if you don't enjoy what you're writing, then what's the point? Uh, if, if the idea doesn't interest you, then what's the point? Otherwise you're just writing an essay, you know, an mm-hmm. assignment. Someone's given you an assignment, now write. So write the book that you want to read, basically. And that that's sort of the philosophy I've always held to, is I've always written something that I would want to read. Mm-hmm. I'm, the book that I'm writing now is the book that I wish I had read when I was 12 years old. The book that I sold was the book that I would have loved to read when I was 16. So... You know, I'm always writing for myself. I'm always writing to please myself. If you're trying to write either, if you're trying to write to something outside of you, like either the market or to please, I don't know, some imaginary quota that you think you can fulfill, it's not going to be, you're not going to be successful. I mean, you Mm -hmm. may be able to get all those words out, but, you know, in, in my opinion anyway, it would be hollow. It doesn't come from you. So that, you know, I don't know that that's more or less my advice for coming up with stories. I mean, all writing, not all writing, but a, a lot of fiction writing is 
a process of discovery, you know, a process of, of what matters to you, what interests you. Um, it's why there are a lot of subconscious themes in all of our work that we may not have noticed the first time, but seem mm-hmm. to crop up over and over again. Writing is a process of discovery. You know, yes, you're telling a story to entertain people, but if you can't entertain yourself first, then why bother? <laughs> <laughs> so, and that's more or less what I have to say about coming up with story seeds if you don't have any. Now, what to do after. So you have two of the three, or if you're lucky, you have all three. Mm-hmm. So, so then you start writing, right? Yes, sort of. <laughs> what do you mean, sort of? <laughs> um, even though I'm a pantser, I tend to at least have as just like at least kind of a vague idea of where I'm going. You know, I'm not blundering into the woods with absolutely no map or anything like that. Now, um, maybe I'm a blunderer. Maybe I'm not a panzer. <laughs> I'm just a blunderer. Um, well, I always call myself a, a sort of like a headlights writer in that I am on a road trip and I know what my end destination is, or I, I vaguely know what the end destination looks like. Um, and I know I'm going to get there and I know that if I stay on this path, I'll get there at some point. But I don't know every turn in the road. I can only see as far as the next turn through the headlights. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I can't plot. I I can't, you know, I'm not going to be like, this is the rest stop we're taking here. This is where we're stopping for lunch, blah, blah, blah. I can't do that. But I have a pretty good idea of where I'm going. So I think before you before you sit down and just start vomiting words onto the page, <laughs> just take a couple of seconds. And what I do anyway is I write what I call the long shitty synopsis. And so in, instead of sitting down and trying to put words onto a pristine page, I literally do this by hand. I take my journal and I open it up and I tell myself the story. So, and I actually write by hand a lot when I'm drafting and when I'm revising too, because writing by hand for helps loosen certain things in my brain, um, that just typing in front of the computer won't do for me, but like literally just like open up like your journal or find a script piece of scrap paper and just say, you know, there's this guy, he comes from a family of vampire hunters And then one day his ex-girlfriend shows up and she's all bloodied and bitten. And now he has to figure out how to save her from turning into a vampire, you know, and he, you know, she says that I know where the cure is, but you know, it's like all the way across country. So we have to figure out how to get to the cure. Like literally just like tell yourself the story, just write it out. This is you talking to yourself. It's not you trying to write it down. If that makes sense, you're not Mm -hmm. trying to come up with a story or you're not trying to write the prose yet. You're just telling yourself the story, pure story, none of the prose trappings around it. Right. This happened and then this happens Mm -hmm. and then this happens. And this happens. You don't have to dive into the emotional aspects of the character unless it's important. 
Um, and you don't actually have to write it out for the whole book. You just have to write out the beginning. So I, I naturally, when I write, tend to think in acts, like act one, act two, act three, sometimes act four, uh, because I tend to think of my story as having these turning points, these major turning points in it. The ones I know best are always sort of in the beginning. You know, I, I'm actually usually have a pretty good sense of my story, like the first third of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after that is just, uh, I'm in the woods. I don't know. Um, I'll get there eventually. <laughs> I'll, I'll figure it out. But so after you've written the long shitty synopsis and you write until the point you run out of story, like you write to the point where you don't know what happens next. And, you know, for me, that's generally around halfway. Like I write oh, for, <laughs> for me, it's like chapter two. <laughs> you don't have to think about it in chapters. You know, you, you just think right, about it right. as, you know, this happens and this happens and this happens and this happens. And then you just, you're like, and then they do things here and it adds up to something at the end. Like you don't have to know the specifics, but if mm-hmm. you know as many of the specifics as you can come up with, that's great. And you don't have to stick with any of it either. Like that can change over the course of writing. Like you don't have to be married to this long shitty synopsis that you've written. Um, so once you've written that, um, then you sit down and you identify two plot points. Now, as I mentioned before, I'm not a huge fan of craft books that focus over much on structure. Um, it just <laughs> makes me too anxious. Like I can't think about is my plot adhering to, you know, the first, you know, the midpoint or is it, you mm-hmm. know, like I, I can't think about that too much, but it, for the beginning, I think there are two turning points that are really important for you to identify. The first is the inciting incident, which I will go into more depth on pub crawl later in in the month of November, um, what the inciting incident is. So that's the first one. And the second one is what I call the point of no return. And this all comprises the beginning of your book. The inciting incident Now, if you Google this, you're going to come up with a a multitude of definitions and, you know, they're all right in their own way, but for the purposes of this podcast and my definition of the inciting incident is the thing that happens that changes the status quo. Mm -hmm. So in a Western, go go on. No, I was going to say, so in Harry Potter, he gets the Hogwarts letter. Yes. And that That's changes everything. Incident. And then the what I call the point of no return is when the protagonist takes the first... The, when the protagonist gets personally involved or takes action. Mm-hmm. So usually an inciting incident, or at least the way I see an inciting incident, is external. It's an external change. Someone comes to town. Harry gets his Hogwarts letter. That's not something he had control over. Something Mm -hmm. external starts the plot going. The point of no return is when 
Harry decides he's going to Hogwarts. Mm-hmm. You know, he's taken that internal, he's made that internal decision, I'm going to be a wizard. Um, it's obviously oversimplifying things. And not every book is going to fall into these clear-cut definitions. This is the inciting incident, and this is the point of no return. Because sometimes the inciting incident and the point of no return are the same thing, the same mm-hmm. plot point. So, you know, obviously this is not a, a formula that you're going to plug things into. But you want to find the thing that starts the story, you know, the, I don't know, I, you're probably better at baking metaphors than I am, but you know, like there's a starter <laughs> or if you want to, um, if you're, I don't know, if you're brewing beer, you know, and you want to get the fermentation process going, you add yeast to it, you know, that's kind of what it is. You throw it into the, the mix to get things going. That's the inciting mm-hmm. incident. And, and the the sort of amount of time between the inciting incident and the moment your protagonist decides to take action can be a long time. It can, you know, it can be an entire act like it is in my book. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, f- so the book that's coming out next year is <laughs> I've pitched it loosely as Labyrinth meets Amadeus. <laughs> but it's based very loosely on the movie Labyrinth with David Bowie and Jennifer Connelly. But in my book, the inciting incident is the two girls in my, in my story, they're girls and not a sister and a brother. The two sisters go to a market and one of them eats enchanted fruit and is now susceptible to being enchanted by the goblins, you know, kind of also based on the goblin market by Christina Rossetti. But that's the inciting incident when her sister eats something that she shouldn't and leaves her open to otherworldly influence. That lasts for the entire first act of the book. (laughs) And it's only when her sister gets stolen by the goblins is when my main character has, has to then take action and figure out what she's going to do to rescue her sister and bring her back. So that's the point of no return when she goes out and, and searches out the underground to go find her sister and bring her back. So those are the, that's basically the beginning of your book. But yeah, do you, do you, I don't know if you have any questions, if you're confused about what I mean by the inciting incident or... No, I'm, I'm pretty clear on the inciting incident. I think, um, I really look forward to the post that you're going to write later on in the month because, um, I think it's a really fascinating, I think like you said, the point of no return, the moment when the, um, the main character takes action can happen, you know, almost immediately after the inciting incident, or it could happen very later. There's a lot more leeway with that, but I think your inciting incident is kind of what people talk about when they say you have to start your book, like, in the middle of the story. Mm-hmm. Like, you, you want to start your book when things are happening. All You don't want to, like, spend all of this time establishing the way that things are now before the inciting incident because the story doesn't really start until the inciting incident happens. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that kind of needs to come pretty, pretty close up front of the, of the, of the book, you know, you, but I would say probably like within the first two chapters, what, 
Yeah, two chapters. You you really want it in there um, as soon as possible because up until that inciting incident, your readers have no reason to be reading. They're they're reading without knowing why. You know, everything is just kind of um, in stasis until that inciting incident happens. Um, so that I think, um, is a, is a good thing to keep in mind that you really want to get that going as early in your story as possible. And yeah, this was a, actually a Twitter conversation I was having with Cheryl Klein. She's an editor at, at Arthur Levine books. She works at Scholastic. She also worked on Harry Potter. Um, and she also wrote this amazing book called Second Sight, which is sort of a, a collection of her talks and essays that she's given about revising and plotting and everything like that, which I highly recommend. And I'll put a link to in the show notes. Um, but we were, you know, we, it was talking with her and other editors and, and some agents about the, the inciting incident and how early we want to see it happen or take place in the mm-hmm. book. And the general consensus was we we liked it within the first couple of chapters, mm-hmm. like end of chapter two at the absolute latest. Any later than that, and you're kind of like, well, when does the story start? Right. And honestly, though, sometimes the inciting incident can begin, can happen before your book even opens. For example, um, I'll take Melinda Lowe, her book Ash, which is a retelling of Cinderella, a lesbian mm-hmm. retelling of Cinderella, and a really, really gorgeous book. One could say that the inciting incident of that novel is her mother's death, but that takes place off page and before the book even opens. But that's the thing that changes everything for the protagonist. It changes mm-hmm. the status quo for her. And what she does afterward is, is the story. So your inciting incident is what changes the status quo for your protagonist and what they do afterward is your story. That That's the whole book. And so you do, and it, it helps because I know people don't understand what that is. They're like, where does my story begin? And it honestly helps to go through all your favorite books and see if you can't identify the inciting incidents of all the books that you love. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, again, the inciting incident of the Hunger Games takes place before the book even opens, which is the Hunger Games. <laughs> or, <laughs> or you can actually say the inciting incident is when Katniss's sister's name gets pulled. Gets called, and gets then called. very immediately afterwards, she takes action and volunteers. Mm-hmm. So that's an example of the two kind of being going very one right after together. the other. Yeah. And almost being the same plot point. So if you are still stuck on that, then, you know, let's see if we can't think of any other examples, um, sort of more recent books. What's a recent book we can talk about? <laughs> For like an example of an, ex- and of an inciting incident. Ooh. Mm-hmm. I've had a, I've had a beer guys. So yeah, I'm, I'm working my way through, uh, another, <laughs> another alcoholic group beer myself. So. Excellent. Excellent. I'm having a bent paddle, an extra special amber ale, local Ooh. beer for the win. Nice. Um, a recent book with, um, an inciting incident. <sighs> what have I read recent? Oh, so, um, the Martian mm. by Andy Weir. That's one where the inciting incident kind of happens before the book starts too, where he's left on Mars. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> and that kind of happens before the book really starts and the book opens. And then he kind of tells you about what has just happened to him. Yeah. And that's um, where the inciting incident and the point of no return is the same because he literally has no choice. Right. <laughs> inciting incident been left on Mars. The point of no return. Well, I've been left on Mars. <laughs> So yeah, so there's that. Um, I'm trying to think of what else I've read recently, but I, 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 it's so rare for me to actually read books that are current because I'm either reading things from a few seasons ago or things that are forward a few seasons because right. such is the nature of publishing. I never have any idea what is actually coming out at a given time. <laughs> so yeah, I just, oh, I just read, um... I just read Walk on Earth a Stranger by... Oh, um, yeah, the Ray Carson book. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was excellent. I can talk about that more at the at the end. But um, the inciting incident in that book is that um, her parents are murdered by her uncle. And, um, you know, her uncle comes, murders her parents, changes everything, and she's kind of stuck there um, trying to figure out what to do. And then the point of no return is when she decides to run away and leave town. Um, but there's a little bit of time in between those events for a while. She's kind of placating her uncle and trying to pretend like she doesn't know what's going on, um, you know, as sort of a self-preservation technique. And then her best friend, um, tells her that he's going to leave town and held head for California. Uh, and he tells her that he'll wait for her a little while, um, in a, in a nearby town and, you know, if she wants to try to get away and meet him there, she can do that. And so she takes some time to kind of think it over and then decides, okay, I've got to get out of here. I can't stay here anymore. And she leaves. Um, yeah. And that's so, the beginning of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think of other examples. Uh, so, oh, here's another example where the inciting incident happens before the book opens is, uh, the wrath and the dawn by Rene Athier. And this is a, a retelling of A Thousand and One Arabian Nights. And the inciting incident is that the protagonist, Shahrzad, Shazi, her best friend Shiva gets killed because she's one of the, the brides of the, ca the caliph. And uh, you, if you guys know the story of Arabian Nights, there's this murderous king who marries women and then beheads them the next day. So, <laughs> yeah. Um... And so the inciting incident is her best friend got killed, but her best friend got killed before the book opens. And, but the point of no return is when Shahrzad decides to marry the king herself to avenge her best friend's death. That's the point mm -hmm. of no return. And that's like the very first chapter of the book too. So the inciting incident happened like before the book even opens and the point of no return is immediately in the opening chapters. So this is what I mean by this is not a strict formula you should adhere to and, mm -hmm. and books are different. So, you know, be open to, or, and be flexible. Like, you know, like I think this is the best place to start my story because the wrath and the dawn could have started with, you know, showing Sh Shazi and her best friend as girls. And then, you know, Shiva, which is the name of the right. best friend being chosen by the king and then dying and then Shazi deciding to marry the king for revenge. That's not necessary. That's not the point of the story. So, you know, she started it right at the moment Sharzad decides that she's going to marry the king. Mm -hmm. So, you know, again, just sort of 
I, I tend to be pretty instinctual when I write my storytelling instincts tend to just be like, this feels right. And when people ask me to break things down or articulate it, I sometimes have to like sit there for a long time and be like, uh, <laughs> and, and try to come up with the reasons why I did something this way or the reasons why this book breaks the rules or whatever. It's because there are no rules. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Everything that I'm pointing out for you, the inciting incident and the story seeds or whatever, if this doesn't work for you, then ignore it. Just do what works for you. Like if, mm-hmm. if you feel trapped or constrained by the advice that I'm giving you, then ignore me. Like there's no right way to write. And if someone does tell you that there is a right way to write, then don't listen to them because they don't know what they're talking about. Um, so, you know, be flexible to the to the needs of your story, you know? Mm-hmm. Sometimes you want to start as close to the action as possible, depending on how your book is, is paced. Sometimes you want to give a little bit of a breathing room. You know, it all depends on your voice, what the story calls for, etc. So, mm-hmm. so now that I'll you... I'll drink to that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so now... That you've written your long shitty synopsis and identified those two points now you can start writing <laughs> oh god yeah there you go that's that's gonna get us through week one of NaNoWriMo guys <laughs> just keep writing you don't need to know every detail like I said I usually put in placeholders if I don't know everything first like I'll just put mm-hmm. like boy's name in brackets and just move Yeah, on. I don't have any names for my characters, so that's literally what I'm doing right now. It's like, girl, brother one, brother two. <laughs> it's, it's City name, parentheses, mm-hmm. keep going. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Important background info. Yeah, it's going to be very, I just did an awesome thing where I was just waving my hands around, which none of you could see because this is a podcast and it's audio only. Thank God. Thank goodness, I know. <sighs> so yeah. I think that more or less wraps up the uh mm-hmm. you know getting ideas and how to get started with nano. Um so we can move on to our next segment which is what are you reading Kelly? So I obviously just mentioned um Walk on Earth a Stranger by Ray Carlson but um I want to come back to it again because it was a fantastic, fantastic book. Um, I had read her previous series before and really enjoyed it. Um, I thought they were excellent, excellent books. I think I liked this more. Really? Um, I think I did. Um, so I went into it not knowing anything. So, um, I had not even known that she had had a new book come out and I think it published in April. Is that right? September. Um, September. Pretty recently, actually. Okay, good. Um, so I didn't even know that it had been published. I knew nothing about it. I was, um, searching through my library, um, app on my phone. I get all of my, everything that I read, I would say probably 90% of what I read these days is all eBooks borrowed from my library. (laughs) Um, and when I have nothing to read or the things that are on my hold list haven't come through yet, then I'll just go in and I'll browse certain genres um, and see if anything catches my eye. And so Walk on Earth a Stranger popped up, uh, and miraculously it was available immediately. There was no wait list for it, which is unusual. Everything I ever want to read at the library I need to get 
um, <laughs> add like number person number 503 onto the waiting list. Yeah. That um, was me with girl with a train. And mm-hmm. I was literally something like number 697. Yep. And I was like, this is going to be three years before I get to read this book. So I'm actually just going to buy myself a copy. <laughs> And I've done that before too, but there was no wait. So I got to read it right away. And so I didn't know anything going in. And I think I expected much more because her previous series was, you know, so much more of a traditional fantasy with a created world and a magic system and all of this stuff. I think I was expecting something more along those lines. Um, but it really reads as a historical novel with a protagonist who has a singular magic ability. And it's, the only hint of magic that we really have thus far in the entire series is her singular ability, which is that gold calls to her. She can sense it um, in the ground when people are wearing gold jewelry, um, gold coins. Gold will just cause a physical reaction in her, and so she can always sense when it's nearby and when she's getting closer to it. Um, and it's set during the 1800s in uh, during the California Gold Rush. Woohoo! Represent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and it was really—I mean, I devoured it. I think I read it all in one day, although not one sitting. Um, and I just—I loved. The characters, Leah, uh, who goes by Lee, uh, is the, the protagonist, and she is um, a girl who um, was raised by her parents to have a lot of freedom and a lot of independence. Uh, she does a lot of physical work. She's very smart and resourceful and straightforward um, and not necessarily, you know, a proper young lady of the time period. Um, she disguises herself as a boy for the first half of the novel. Um, but she extends so far beyond like the typical quote unquote strong female protagonist, Mm -hmm. which I feel like has almost even begun to like lose meaning anymore. Like what is the, what does that even mean? Like a strong female protagonist? Like what is that? And Lee or Leah um, is just so well-rounded and multifaceted and has internal conflict and, um, yearns for things and doubts herself and makes mistakes and regrets them. And she's just has such a rich inner life. Um, she's a fabulous narrator. I loved her. Um, I loved her best friend slash, um, romantic interest sort of um there's romance throughout the book but it's not at all the focus of the narrative which is also really refreshing Mm -hmm. um i love um i love romance i love a really good romance uh in my stories but i also think that it's become a little bit oversaturated kind of in the ya market and i feel like it's really hard now for me to find a ya romance that really thrills me or that excites me or makes me want to root for it. I just feel like I just kind of expect a romance in every book and they're kind of all the same. And so, um, there is a romance in this. I did enjoy it. Uh, but it's not the focus of the narrative and her best friend Jefferson or Jeff, um, is a half Cherokee, uh, boy. And I, I'm not a person of color, and so I can't speak about it from that perspective at all, but I was so um, 
I learned so much from the way she wrote his character because his ethnicity was always a present part of the narrative of his responses to things, of his actions that he took, um, without ever being what his character was about. You know, his being half Cherokee informed his character, but it didn't overtake his character. Um, but at the same time, it was never anything that was just like thrown away to the side that wasn't addressed. I just felt like it was something that I learned a lot from reading that particular character. And I don't know how other people feel about it or how different communities reacted to it. Um, but for me, I, I was really impressed by the way that that was handled. And I feel like learned a lot, um, from that character and the way that she handled that in the narrative. Unfortunately, there's a real dearth of representations of Native Americans in fiction. So, you know, I obviously can't give too many resources either, but um, there is a blog run by a Native American woman named Debbie Reese. And I do believe that she did a review of um, Walk on Earth, a Stranger. So I know that she had some critical thoughts about mm -hmm. how Native Americans were portrayed in this book. So if I can find the blog post, I'll also link that link to that in the show notes. I it's I have Walk on Earth a Stranger. It's on my to be read pile, which is growing larger by the day. <laughs> I haven't read it yet. Um, uh, so, but if you want a, a point of view from an actual Native woman about what she thought, I would love it. Mm -hmm. I can definitely link people to that. Um, so. Yeah, that that's uh I guess that's that. Are you reading anything else? I am. Uh I <laughs> I just started the Gender Bent Twilight. <laughs> you did. I started it. Yep. I'm uh at the very beginning they they just met. It's uh Bo and Edith just had their little, you know, chemistry class or whatever where they sit next to each other and she uh is, you know, disdained by his very presence. Um it was, it, it, so I started, so, so I'll just put it out there that I'm not a Twilight fan. Um, I have read all the books in the series. Um, I have some issues with them. Um, over time, my opinions about them have changed. Um, and I, you know, I, I think they're not for me and I think, uh, they are for other people, and that's great. Um, but when the news kind of shook the earth that Stephanie Meyer was doing this gender-bent Twilight thing, I became really curious because a lot of my problems with the story are the power dynamics in the relationship and the way that just the whole, everything about the romance I find um I, it's, I just don't, it, it's not, uh, those were my issues <laughs> with the book. And so I was curious to see if the genders were swapped, um, would that fundamentally change mm -hmm. my opinions? You know, stalking is still stalking no matter who's doing it, right. but, but without, you know, kind of all that loaded, uh, you know, patriarchy sort of a stuff would, would it be less, um, upsetting to me to do that? And so I decided to read it, you know, her prose is the same. Um, 
as far as I can tell, it's slightly more sophisticated than a find and replace. So the character of Bo and the character of Bella are slightly different. Um, you know, Bo isn't, is still clumsy, but not quite as clumsy. He, his dialogue is, uh, slightly less flowery or feminine. Um, so there's some, some slight changes, but for the most part, it really is the same text with the gender swapped and the names changed and everything. Um, and also, as far as I can tell, the genders are swapped for everybody. When I first started reading, I thought it was just Bella and Edward had become Bo and Edith. Every single character except for the protagonist's parents have been gender swapped. So all the Cullens oh. that were male are now female. So um, like Carlisle is now a woman. And mm-hmm. Dr. Carlin. Yeah. Oh, yep. Interesting. So every single character, all the kids in the high school, everybody um, have been gender swapped with the exception of Bella slash Bo's parents. And Stephanie Meyer has like an author's note at the beginning that explains why she didn't swap their genders, which had something to do with it being more realistic for a mother to retain custody and blah, blah, blah. I don't know. It didn't, it didn't really make sense to me, but but she specifically addresses that in an author note. So Charlie and Renee, uh, Bella slash Bo's parents are still Charlie and Renee. Um, but every other character has been swapped. And so I wasn't expecting that either. So that has been interesting and it's, it's, you know, like I said, I'm still at the very beginning. So Bo just showed up at school, you know, and in the book, Bella shows up and there's these guys who all like her and everybody wants to be her friend. And it's like this whole thing. And it's interesting to see all that flipped. Um, it, I, I'm much too early in to say whether or not it's going to drastically change my opinion of the, the story such as it is. Um, but it's been interesting. Yeah, I mean, gender swapping anything, I think, is actually an interesting exercise in general. Um, you can do it with your own characters, too. Like, if if this character I've conceived of as a dude, if this dude is now a female, would that change anything? Would I write this person differently? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think it's a very interesting exercise to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I really don't have any interest in reading it, but to be completely honest, I'm not a Twilight person anyway. Regardless mm-hmm. of whether or not the genders are swapped or not, I just meh. vampire love story. Eh. I just for like I said, for somebody who loves gothic tropes as much as I do, the vampire just doesn't do it for me. So, eh. and I read the first Twilight novel and barely finished it. It just, and I was like, well, I think I think. No, I, I think even if I were a 14-year-old girl when I'd read it for the first time, I don't think my opinion would have changed all that much. It's just mm-hmm. not my thing. I, I'm just, I mean, I, like like Kelly, like you, I, I love romances and books. I love love stories. But when it's the only story, then I'm not as interested. I, I, I need mm-hmm. other things to be happening to keep my to keep my interest. So, and then... I didn't read New Moon and I didn't read Eclipse, but I did read Breaking Dawn, which, Mm -hmm. unlike Twilight, I read in one sitting and had a great time reading that book. Mm -hmm. It was so, just so off the wall, amazing. Like, every promise or every wish fulfillment promise 
made in Twilight has been fulfilled in Breaking Dawn. So in my opinion, mm-hmm. I don't even think you need to read New Moon or Eclipse. You can just read Twilight and then Breaking Dawn and you've got the whole <laughs> story. There's, there's no point in reading the other two. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but again, Twilight just wasn't my thing and it would probably never be my thing anyway. So mm-hmm. probably not yeah. going to read it. <laughs> yeah. I did actually, since um, we're still somewhat on the topic, I did just find the Debbie Reese blog post that you were talking about. Oh, yeah. Um, and she, uh, does have quite a lot of things to say. Um, and, uh, we should definitely link to it in the show notes. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, obviously she's a native woman, so she has far Mm -hmm. more experience than either Kelly or I would be able Mm -hmm. to bring to the table. I completely defer to that. You know, I think that there's probably a lot more, uh, than what I was able to just glean from, from that book. So yeah, we'll definitely link to that. Mm -hmm. But, uh. But what are you reading? Um, well, I uh, read. I'm actually going through a reread of Harry Potter. I fairly recently, J.K. Rowling had released these special edition versions, ebook versions of Harry Potter, all seven of them, with mm-hmm. um, sort of enhanced moving illustrations uh, from Pottermore because. Once Pottermore got redesigned, all the sort of interactive bits kind of got taken out and all that's sort of left are extra features in writing that J.K. Rowling did, you know, extra stuff about the world of Harry Potter. So it's pretty much all text-based now. Um, But so these special editions have illustrations from Pottermore as well as some annotations of footnotes taken from the Pottermore website. So, you know, Mm -hmm. a little bit more information about Grindelows or... Uh, werewolves or the full content is still going to be on Pottermore, but you know, just like a little you know footnote here and there. And, um, and I initially just bought them for those, but I continued to read them and I was actually kind of just skimming to see if there's anything new in them that I hadn't read before. And then I just fell right back into reading them again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just was initially skimming and then I just fell right back into being like, these are great. I... You know, it's actually been a while. I mean, when I was younger, I used to reread Harry Potter, like, more or less every year. Um, and because... So I think I still do. I I used to have all these yearly traditions that have sort of fallen by the wayside, mostly just because I don't have the time anymore. But when I was younger, I did read Harry Potter every year. Um, and because so much of my life was waiting for the next Harry Potter-related thing. You know, I read... Mm-hmm. Sorcerer's Stone when I was 12, and then Deathly Hallows came out when I was 22, and we were living together, too, so... We were. We had long discussions about that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But anyway, so, you know, 10 years of my life was sort of waiting for the next Harry Potter-related thing, and then for a couple years after that, you know, the movies were coming out and everything, and I just read them over and over again, but, you know, sort of as I got towards my later 20s and I just kind of didn't have as much time so I haven't actually done like a full read start to finish like I would reread a book here and there um like I would reread actually the one that got reread the most is The Prisoner of Azkaban (laughs) um because that's my favorite so that's the one I know the best um probably followed by Order of the Phoenix so kind of the the three middle books I think probably are the ones that have gotten 
reread the most. So it's the, mm-hmm. the ones that I know the best. Um, but I, and I probably, the one I reread the least is Chamber of Secrets. So rereading that book was like, oh yeah, this happened. Yeah. That's the one I've reread the least too. It's my friend's favorite book. My friend, Chris, his favorite book is Chamber of Secrets. And I just, I still don't understand. <laughs> not that it's a bad book. I mean, it's Harry Potter, but like compared to all the other ones. It's, it's not even that it's bad. It's just kind of forgettable maybe mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. you know the first one is the introduction to hogwarts and it has all that sort of charm um and then prisoner of azkaban you get a lot more about harry's parents like the backstory of to harry plus it's an excellent mystery and the time travel and everything it's just really fun and but chamber of secrets is just kind of mm, like, it has greater plot ramifications because it's, like, the first time you see a horcrux, even though you don't know what a horcrux is yet. Mm-hmm. But it just, like, it's not that it's a, it's perfectly competent, but it, I guess compared to sort of what you discover in each of the subsequent books, you, it, it doesn't reveal anything huge. So. Yeah. Um, but now I am on to Half-Blood Prince, which probably after Chamber of Secrets is the one I've reread the least. Um, I love Half-Blood Prince. I, I, I didn't. <laughs> I know. I know. A lot of people don't. A lot of people are like, but nothing happens. Um, <laughs> I just, I just loved that book. I loved, uh, all the you know, not flashbacks, but the pensive memories of Voldemort and, um, all the stuff about Snape and the romance stuff. I love, you know, I Ron and Hermione forever. So yeah, all of that was a, wonderful. Not a Ron and Hermione shipper. Either, oh, but... hush your mouth. Stop, <laughs> stop talking. Stop talking. Um, but I am rereading it and I have a slightly different opinion not of the book necessarily, but just the stuff that you discover and just how extensive the world is, is great. Like Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's really fun to sort of rediscover all of that and just how brilliant JK Rowling is at creating these fully realized worlds and moreover worlds that you want to live in. Even though when I look, when I'm kind of looking at the world as a whole, it's not that great to be a wizard. (laughs) Not really. Um, but yeah, I still want to go to Hogwarts and I still want to take all these classes and, um, there, and the other thing I, I kind of picked up this time around that was always there and I've always noticed it. It's just kind of how dark they are. They're all, each book is about death in some way. And not that I don't think you can have darkness in children's books. I think you absolutely should in in many ways you should have darkness in children's fiction but death is a huge part of all of them because the stakes and I am kind of comparing this to some of the other sort of middle grade novels that I've been reading in my um how do other people middle grade research binge but mm-hmm. you know in in prisoner of Azkaban everyone thinks Harry is the target of what they think is a mass murderer and this mass murderer who has managed to sneak into the castle and broken security. And I'm like, wow. I mean, it was such a different time when this book was published. <laughs> 1998, <laughs> 99. It's a very different world we live in now. And reading that, I'm thinking, Jesus, this, you know, 
you know, and, and like the whole like, thing with the fat lady's portrait being slashed to ribbons. And I was like, this is really dark. There is such a, such a dark edge to this that, well, I've always known was there just kind of was brought home to me in a slightly different way on this reread. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was kind of coming off the heels cause I just finished reading the third, uh, adult thriller by J.K. Rowling. And those are very dark. They're pretty violent and they're very, very dark. And, and I, and I, and I thought initially, well, you know, her Harry Potter books are so different, but now that I'm kind of rereading them, it's like, no, they're, they're also dark. They're just, the darkness is kind of overlooked by many readers, I think, because of the whimsy of the magic, but they're also, they're just as dark in their own way. So that's, that's mostly what I'm rereading. Um, I am also listening, still listening to Illuminae on audio at work, which is pretty great. I love a, a full cast audio. Uh, they're not all that common, but I, I kind of love them. Um, I, when I was living in England, I actually got into listening to radio plays, which the BBC does, um, on their radio, they have radio dramas and, um, I love them. It's such an old fashioned thing to like, but, um, I, I love I love the, the the cast and the and they they've adapted like they adapted his dark materials for as a radio play, which is actually very good, and I think I liked it a lot. And of course, his dark materials is actually a full cast audio recording as well, as are Tamara Pierce's The Immortals Quartet. That's a full cast audio. I don't think all of her, all of Tamara Pierce's are full cast. But. No, they're not because I have the trickster books in audio and those are single narrator. Alana is single narrator too. Mm-hmm. They're, isn't it, aren't they both Trini Alvarado? Yes, they're both Trini Alvarado. I love her. I wish she would narrate everything. She's really great. She's, she's really great. Um, but yeah, I actually like full cast audio. I, I like the, the production value and I think um, Illuminae does do a pretty good job of translating all the sort of what it, what I would have thought would be kind of untranslatable things from the text to audio. So mm-hmm. that's, that's what I'm reading now. <laughs> um, are you working on anything creative aside from your face melting over NaNoWriMo? Aside from my face melting off, um, anything creative other than that? I don't think so really yet. I mean, maybe possibly something, but not anything I can talk about yet so that was useless <laughs> um so yeah no not really just face melting NaNoWriMo yeah I'm I'm mostly gearing up for NaNoWriMo as well so I don't have anything new again still working on Inktober as because mm-hmm. as we record it's it's still October um but I only have a couple of days of Inktober left um so I I, I think I might write up a post on, on my blog about it, but I kind of learned a lot during Inktober this year um, that mm-hmm. may, some of those lessons may be applied to writing perhaps. Um, because unlike writing, which I sort of treat as a job now, you know, I, I force myself to sit down and get words out when necessary. I used to only draw when I was inspired. Like, I feel like drawing this, so I'm going to draw. Um, and that wasn't always the case. When I was in high school, I was in a visual arts conservatory. So two days a week for 
like two to three hours after school, I would do art. Um, mm -hmm. You have to. You had to audition to get into visual arts conservatory, and um, every semester you had to have like three or four projects. And we also had to, in addition to the sort of the big projects we were working on, we also had to come up with uh, what we called concentration pieces for our portfolios. For and I did AP art, mm -hmm. um, so I had to you know three days a week for a dedicated amount of time. I had to work on art regardless of whether or not I was inspired on it. Um, but after I left school and I didn't have any formal classes in it anymore, I just stopped, you know, and I just said, I feel like drawing this. And because of that, I just fell out of practice. Like, you know, I was doing my Inktober sketches and they're not even finished pieces. They're just like sketches. They're not mm. great. They're, they're not like me sitting down and trying to like make a finished piece of artwork. But the act of sitting down and drawing something not exactly every day but close to every day I can see improvement in my own artwork and sort of those muscles that hadn't been used in such a long time kind of coming back and the sort of trusting myself because like initially I, I didn't trust myself like I did everything in pencil first mm -hmm. and um and then I would do the line art very quickly, and then I would take a picture of that just in case I ruined it with whatever I was doing next, uh, whatever step, whatever inking step I was putting down next. And I would kind of take every step, picture of every step of the process. But as I did it every day, and as those muscles came back, and I, I remembered, I just learned to trust myself and to go with it. Like, if I mess up, whatever, I'll, you know, work around it, fix it, change it. Uh, and there are days for Inktober where there I produced several, like several sketches where I just, they were so uninspired. They were so flat. They just meh, but I knew I, I had to do one. Um, but just doing it, you know, I don't consider it wasted. I, I don't cons even though the final product, the sketch, I didn't like, I didn't think it was good. I didn't think it had anything of value to it. I don't regret doing it. Mm -hmm. I did it, you know, it, it kept, it kept me going. So um, yeah, th those, those are sort of oblique lessons you can take away from writing every day. <laughs> this is what you should do, you you should write every day. Um, Which we are doing for the month of November. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so do you have any off-menu recommendations? Off-menu recommendations? What have I been into this week? Oh my god, okay, so, um, I finally started watching The Great British Bake Off. <laughs> because it's it's on Netflix <laughs> and it's so delightful it's so delightful um and I was really upset because I like binged the whole thing over the weekend and then they only have one season on there oh. I was like expecting to go through and and you know watch like all I don't know I think there's like five or six seasons uh but they only have one on Netflix so that was truly devastating I did find some other episodes on uh pbs.com or I actually don't know if their website is .com or .org or what, but .org. PBS's, PBS's website <laughs> has some full episodes. And it's, I mean, I love um, cooking shows. I love, like, the old-fashioned cooking shows where it's, like, Julia Child getting drunk and telling you how to make chicken. And then I also love <laughs> food reality competitions like Top Chef or, you know, anything that's on 
the Food Network Chopped or, you know, Cutthroat Kitchen or whatever, Iron Chef, anything. I, I just love uh, food television in all of its various <laughs> forms. Um, but uh, as much as I love all of the standard American reality cooking competitions, um, there is a certain formula when it comes to American reality TV in general, uh, that is definitely true of, you know, the reality cooking genre as well, which is, you know, there's lots of like drama and, um, distinct personalities that are perhaps, um, put on the show purely to generate conflict. And, you know, there's just, there's just lots of like mm. chaos and drama and mean spiritedness and people stealing other people's pee purees and stuff. Um, <laughs> the great British bake off is just like, it's just delightful. Like everybody is just like, so happy to be there and like doing these amazing things. And I bake and I, think that I'm a pretty talented amateur baker, uh, and have made some complex stuff, but you know, the stuff these people are making is crazy. Um, I love the format. There's three challenges. The first one is your signature thing. So it's something that you've made a bunch of times and you know, really well, the second challenge is a technical challenge where you are given a recipe that you've never seen before that has some instructions missing and you need to take your general baking knowledge and apply it to this new recipe and see if you can make a proper result, hmm. um, with what you're given. And then the final one is like some crazy, ridiculous challenge where it's something incredibly, um, technical and precise and you have to make like 30 of them and they all have to be perfect, you know, or whatever. Um, but it's just delightful. All the people are wonderful. They all have amazing accents, which is probably <laughs> like fetishizing British people, but I, I just, I can't be sad about it. It's wonderful to listen to them talk and just say these like just adorable things. Um, it's just, it's just so, uh, it's just like pleasant and like, <laughs> I just watch it and I just feel so happy. Um, it's always nice so, to watch something when people aren't cutthroat and snippy yeah. and yeah. You know, like it's just, everyone is just fabulous and they're on the on the season that I watched there was a 17 year old girl named Martha and I'm obsessed with her Martha you have no reason to be listening to the publishing girl podcast <laughs> but if for any reason you are listening you are my favorite you are wonderful I just think you're the best <laughs> <laughs> so that's it that's what I'm really into lately oh man let's see what I... about you <laughs> So I didn't mention this last week because uh, I totally forgot. Um, I saw Crimson Peak, which is the new Guillermo del Toro movie with uh, Mia Wasikowska. I think that's, I hope that's how you pronounce her name. Um, Tom Hiddleston and Jessica Chastain. And it is a gothic romance. I loved it. It was great. It was everything <laughs> I ever wanted from a from this movie ever, like ever. It has every possible gothic trope you could think of. You know, you have the requisite crumbling house. You have the uh, bright and beautiful and naive heroine. You have uh, the Byronic hero with a secret. You have uh, 
incestuous siblings, which spoiler alert is <laughs> in the movie. Um, but incestuous siblings is kind of a time honored Gothic tradition. Um, and of course this is a Guillermo del Toro film. So everything is beautiful. Like every frame is just gorgeous. Looks like a painting. Uh, I, I loved it. Um, it, it's funny cause like I went to go see it by myself because um, I knew my partner wasn't going to be into it. It's not enough of a horror film for him at all. Mm-hmm. And um, it, I I don't know. I wouldn't call it horror by any stretch of the imagination. Like, yes, there are moments where it's scary. And yes, there are moments where it's gory. But it, I, I don't know. I, I didn't think it was scary. I didn't think it was. It's not horror. It's very much like a straight up gothic romance like mm-hmm. the turn of the screw by henry james or um it's it's there's a lot of jane eyre in there um you can see a lot of jane eyre running through this book and in fact <laughs> when tom hiddleston proposes to mia's character he pretty much lifts a speech directly from jane eyre when he proposes to her um and i was like oh i know what you read when you when you were writing that Guillermo del Toro, I, I see your influence there. Um, <laughs> yep. It, it's, it's a very feminine movie. That's the other thing. It's like, I can go on and on about Gothic tropes and how specifically Gothic horror is a very feminine genre. And, but it's a very feminine movie. And I, well, I actually always like this about Guillermo del Toro. Like he's always done, well by women in pretty much all of his movies that I've seen. Um, but it's such a, like so many of the fears in Gothic horror are very distinctly feminine and and female fears. There's a lot about blood and, and mothers and, and, you know, love and the sort of female types of things that you associate with, with sort of traditionally feminine tropes. Um, they're all on full display. They take center stage and the main character is, um, takes agency, but she's not like the quote, as we've mentioned before, the strong female character who's meaning <laughs> that has become completely diluted or lost. Um, so I, I, I loved it. I, I highly recommend it. You know, there are a couple of scenes if you're a little bit squeamish that maybe you would keep your eyes closed for. But I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of campy, but I like that, you know, it's, it's a little bit over the top, you know, this house literally bleeds. They, (laughs) yeah, they built this house, Allerdale Hall, um, and over a red clay mine. So the red clay, you know, kind of Mm -hmm. looks like blood. And so it's like this house like literally bleeds, like you go down to the basement and you can see the walls are dripping with red clay, but it, you know, it's supposed to be red clay. It really looks like blood. It's so over the top, but it's great. (laughs) I (laughs) love it. (laughs) So that's, that's my off menu recommendation. Um, I mean, I like horror as well. Um, my partner and I both like horror, but we both like different types of horror. Mm -hmm. Um, so, I mean, this this podcast will go up after Halloween, but there's we had just finished watching The Babadook, which is oh, I can't. I read a full synopsis of it because I heard amazing things about this movie, but I I cannot read or watch horror scary things 
even like atmospheric gothic things if they're too creepy i just cannot and then this in particular is about a mother and a child and it just i just i just can't but i read a synopsis so i know the whole story and it I, oh so creepy and, it but, is very but, very creepy it's what like terrifying good. in that way that like if you are a parent you just get these weird thoughts that are dark sometimes and it just like the the concept of that like manifesting is so so horrific it's interesting because (laughs) i i mean i loved the babadook i thought it was wonderful and it's exactly the kind of horror that i like where the monster is both literal and metaphorical Mm -hmm. um as opposed to i don't know like nightmare on elm street or something where the 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 danger is mostly physical the danger of my favorite horror movies and the ones that tend to be more female oriented are like this tend to be more psychological and or ambiguous in terms of what the horror or the threat is and the babadook you know it's about a mother and, and son and it's ultimately how their love for each other saves each other which is really beautiful but it's also in my the way I read it. As somebody who suffers from bipolar disorder, it's about living with a not necessarily a mental disorder, but grief, horrible, mm-hmm. horrible, soul destroying grief. And it's not like they vanquish the Babadook. Spoilers, you guys. If you guys haven't seen the Babadook, um, they don't vanquish the monster. They learn to live with the monster. Um, and the end, you know. In the end, it's her son that saves her from it. And she finds the will to live for her son and, you know, continues. And so over the movie, they've kind of come out of this extreme dark place in their lives. And, you know, they're playing in their garden or whatever, and she's collecting these pill bugs. And she and goes downstairs to the basement where the Babadook still lives. And she's able to have a relationship with this... Thing, this manifestation, this monster of her darkest thoughts and fears and and everything and mm-hmm. it's it's a coexistence and I, I really liked that and this is of course this is a horror movie that's been written and directed by a woman um, the other one that I really love that I think is that I classify as horror that not that Mark doesn't actually agree with me, my partner doesn't agree with me is Black Swan the one that mm-hmm. Natalie Portman won her Oscar for Mm-hmm. That movie is about is basically like single white female, which to me is a horror film and is a specifically female horror trope. The fear yeah, that someone who's like you, just enough like you, but not quite, is going to t- take your place, literally take mm-hmm. over and take place your place and replace you. Um, and Black Swan is a lot is about that fear, um, and kind of literalized in, in 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 many ways. But Mark, of course, also had a slightly different reading of Black Swan. Is he saw it as kind of an extended metaphor for you know sort of other disorders like eating disorder, perhaps you know something that involves so much control. And there is a thread of that in Black Swan as well. So the sort of horror that I like is in addition to being external and the sort of jump scares or whatever is the metaphorical horror where the horror is just beyond 
your comprehension and it, it resonates on a subconscious level. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what I love. That's the kind of horror. Like Shirley Jackson. I don't know if you guys have read Shirley Jackson. Um, she wrote The Haunting of Hill House and We Have Always Lived in the Castle and a short story called The Lottery. And she, in my opinion, is kind of a horror writer par excellence. She's great. As much as I love Stephen King, I think Stephen King has a lot of external horror. When it can be scary, it it doesn't really scare me. Like, it doesn't make me stay up at night (laughs) thinking about it. Those, Those slasher films, you know, like Saw or... Um, any sort of body horror type movies, it doesn't Mm -hmm. phase me. I don't like, I'm actually pretty squeamish. So like I watched saw like 70% of it through my pants, like I like covered my (laughs) face for most of the, and like kind of peeked through my fingers when I thought it was maybe okay to, I just, I don't like body horror. I just, it just makes me squeamish, but the external horror doesn't keep me up at night, but Mm -hmm. movies like the Babadook keep me up at night. (laughs) And I think that's the mark of excellent horror when I'm like, it's like right about to go to sleep. And then this thought comes in I'm like, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> or like, if I need to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, I'll turn uh, on all the lights in the bedroom. <laughs> uh, yeah. Now, <laughs> freaked out now. Freaked out. Ugh, I love horror. Um, mm. there, there are a lot of think pieces actually that some women have written about how horror is actually very, very feminine genre. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of guys are like, oh, I didn't think women liked horror. And I was like, are you kidding me? Do you know how many women I know who love horror? Mm -hmm. There's so many. I mean, I I think, I think it's great. So uh, those are, those are my picks. If you guys like to be scared, which I do, (laughs) (laughs) we just went to an amusement park. They had their like Halloween amusement park. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, like how kind of major amusement parks like during the month of October, like have haunted houses and things like that. So my, my partner and I went and, um, it's, I don't also, I also don't scare easily. So it's like all those people who come out of the haunted houses and like try and scare you and they come up to you and surprise. It doesn't work on me. Like I, like I, I'm surprised by it, but I don't react to it. I don't scream. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't even jump. Like I just, Somebody like, and it's, I can tell it's really disappointing because Mark doesn't scare very easily either. So mm-hmm. it's like the two of us walking through and we get totally unmolested in the haunted house because <laughs> we're not easy to scare. So what Mark and I had done actually was that we decided that we were going to try and wait in line until like a group of teenage girls goes in front of us. Cause you know, you have a group of teenage girls uh-huh. and it's partly performative and the, their screams sort of feed off each other and you know, they sh- and it's fun to kind of watch that, I guess, because mm-hmm. we're not getting scared. Like we don't jump, we don't twitch, we don't shriek. So <laughs> I guess we're desensitized to it maybe. Mm-hmm. All right. That's all for this week. Next week, we'll be talking about once you've started your NaNoWriMo, how do you keep going? Uh, how, do you keep the, how do you keep it moving when, you know, you're at the end of the first week and you realize that everything you've written is garbage? <laughs> or maybe that's just me. You guys don't write garbage. Only I do. Um, Even if you think it's garbage, it yes. doesn't matter. Just, just keep going. How to keep going. Keep going, keep going forward. Um, so we'll be talking about that next week. Turn off the inner editor. 
As always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance as it helps other listeners find the podcast. And I just want to give out a shout out to the two very lovely people who've given us ratings and reviews so far. Um, Thank you so much. It makes me so excited. Yeah. I was <laughs> I was G-chatting JJ today and I was like, we have a review. Yay. <laughs> um, it's, it, we're not talking into the void. <laughs> If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at pubcrawlblog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at publishingcrawl. You can follow me, Kelly, at bookishchick on Twitter or Instagram or NaNoWriMo. And you can follow me, JJ, at SJJones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter, my website, which is sjjones.com, and I'm also sjjones on NaNoWriMo. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, publishing crawl contributor and author of Vengeance Road, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye. You have, you're making a funny face. You have any questions? I'm No, I'm trying not to sneeze. <laughs> I, have, I have like a sneeze stuck in the back of my nose and so I'm trying to like stretch my mouth out. <laughs> sneeze now. Sneeze now. Now it's gone. <laughs>